first reading, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 51. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us, you have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly, without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. So the next reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptist of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose handles I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we have made it to the third Sunday in Lent, the third Sunday in our journey through Lamentations. Indeed, we are at the halfway point in our series Lamentations. There are two more to go after this one, and then we're at Palm Sunday, and then we're at Easter Day. So we are halfway 
through the expression of pain and the horror of abandonment, the distress of loss, the grief of suffering. And halfway marks, marks a turning point, a move towards something else, a time to begin to hope again. And halfway through this chapter, exactly at the centre of the book, none of this is accidental, at the point where we started reading, that is what happens. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is your faithfulness. These are the verses that are the ones that if you know anything of Lamentations, you know. We've written them into hymns. We sang one this morning. We've turned them into prayers. We've held on to them in the dark times. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Here is the beginning of hope. Here is the beginning of, of new possibility, the promise that it will not remain dark and that the being lost will not be permanent experience. The Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And I am so much more at home in preaching this. It's so much more comfortable and comforting in the midst of distress of the world and the chaos and the fear that threaten to overcome us, the suffering that's all too real and about which all too often we feel or discover we have nothing to do, it's important to hear and say, the love of the Lord never ceases. So here at the midpoint, we begin to reach for hope and promise and a sense of comfort. And it's so much easier and it's so much more reassuring and it's so much more what we are used to. So much so that we might want, well, actually, I don't think we do want, but it might matter that we just stop for a moment and ask whether it's too easy and too reassuring and too much what we are used to. Last week, Dawn led us through an immensely powerful visual and verbal reflection on the second chapter, The Lament of the Lady. And one of her recurring phrases was, how did we get here? To the chaos and the pain and the misery that she was, how did we get here? And that chapter doesn't really answer it, chapter two. This chapter does begin to address it. But lest we get too comfortable in the promise and the hope of the steadfast love of the Lord and unceasing mercy, the chapter faces us with a challenge and a question. It doesn't deny the love and the mercy, but it does mean if we listen carefully, if we let it speak to us and with us, that we cannot settle easily into an unreflecting acceptance of this promise as if it were some kind of cosy duvet there to protect us from a harsh world and solve all the problems of suffering and grief. The promise of eternal love does not negate the reality of pain and distress. And so the challenge and the question are posed. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to the God in heaven, for we have transgressed and rebelled. Listen again. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to the God in heaven, for we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven this is a real challenge for followers of Jesus reading this book. The book is, as we have said, a collection of poems edited into one. 
And this chapter is written in the voice of what the commentators call the valiant man. It comes from verse 1 of this chapter. I am the man who has seen affliction. And, and the word that's used is geber in Hebrew, which means the valiant man, the brave man. And the whole chapter is one voice speaking of his experience. And his experience closely matches and is set out to closely match that of the community and in particular the city. So what we have been hearing of the grief and the chaos of the city is now represented in one figure telling the story. He personalizes and experiences the suffering that's been described, the desolation and attack and brutalization. And he identifies it with the wrath of God. The chapter begins, I am the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's, God's wrath. And then the listing of the sufferings, all attributed to the action of God in wrath as punishment. Where we started to read, where Andrea read for us, is the middle of the chapter. It's the place where the story turns, where the understanding of God shifts from wrath to mercy. For, as the poem says, he does not willingly afflict or grieve anybody. But yet, we have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us. We don't talk much about the wrath of God and of judgment. And that's, there are good reasons for that. It's too easy. It's too easy in, in two different ways. It's too easy to identify our own anger and frustration and desire to be in control with God's wrath and to construct a scenario where the wrath of God is invoked on those with whom we disagree because, of course, we are in line with God's will. And those who are different from us in conviction or practice or outlook or whatever it is, they are wrong and ought to be condemned. And it's a scarily short step from there to being the ones who get to carry out the wrath of God. So in our own history, Baptist churches in their early days took the discipline of disciples very seriously. And in many cases, those who transgressed that discipline were excluded from the congregation. It's there in our history here. When you take that a little further, you get what happened not just amongst us, but to us. When Baptists were seen by more powerful Christians as being deeply and profoundly wrong, and so were imprisoned and fined and excluded, because that was understood to be acting out God's punishment on these heretics, and take that to another stage and you arrive at the burnings and the drownings of those who did not fit into the overarching theological convictions of a society, done to execute in the sincerely beheld belief of the punishment of God. And it's no distance from there to some of the atrocities we have lived beside and with and through. People acting on the conviction that they are the instruments of God's punishment and killing those whom they construct as sinners opposed to God in the wrong. It's a wonderful description of this. If God hates the same people you hate, then you're probably not talking to God. And so it's proper that we exercise a right and good restraint in talking of the wrath of God and the punishment of God being executed on people. We've seen very regrettable examples of it. The floods being caused by same-sex marriage was one of the weirder ones recently. Or the downfall of a nation because it doesn't worship in the right way. The words of the valiant man make it very clear that the actions of people, though he may experience them in, in them the wrath of God, are still their actions. And if we read on to the end of the chapter, it's very clear 
violence is not to be condoned. He, he, he says, further on from where we read, when all the prisoners in the land are crunched underfoot, when human rights are perverted, does the Lord not see it? And further on, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have seen the malice and the plots against me. Violence in the name of God is not to be condoned. And it's right and proper that we exercise restraint in identifying the wrath of God when we look at the suffering of the world. Especially if we find ways to construct that wrath as falling on other people. There is another danger too. The danger of hearing it as only applying to us and of identifying everything difficult that happens to us as God's punishment and therefore finding ourselves caught up in a chaos of guilt and despair. I've sat with too many people who are dealing with tough stuff, ill health or chaotic circumstances or disastrous events and heard them ask, what have I done wrong? And the simple answer is nothing deserves this. When Jesus' disciples saw the man blind from birth and said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus is pretty quick to say that's not the question. That's not the point. That's not how it works. We need to exercise proper restraint in considering the possibilities that the things that make us suffer or cause us unhappiness are direct punishments from God for some real or imagined sin. And so we don't often talk about wrath or punishment. Actually, we also don't often talk about wrath or punishment because it makes us uncomfortable. That's not who we believe God to be. We are followers of Jesus. And at the center of Jesus' teaching is the assertion that God loves us and does not punish us. And at the heart of the Easter story that we're approaching is the conviction that punishment is not the action of a loving God. So let's be honest. As well as the proper and good restraint in avoiding speaking of the wrath of God in the wrong way, there is also a profound discomfort of speaking of it at all because it's not who we want God to be. That's an old-fashioned or punitive or damaging or anthropomorphizing, making God like us, way of understanding God, and we're too sophisticated and too advanced for that. And yet here it is. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to the God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. That's why it matters that we understand something of the whole chapter. That we see that this is the valiant man speaking both as himself and on behalf of the community. And he approaches this confession and challenge through the promise of the mercy and the steadfast love. Because what he is speaking of here is indeed an experience of wrath coming as a consequence of rebellion. This is not one person did something wrong the way we all do and so gets a smacked hand or something parallel. Indeed, a lot of the poems are making the point that that's exactly not what it is, that the suffering far exceeds anything that might be justified as appropriate punishment. And the people who did not do whatever it was are the ones who are suffering, and that's where it becomes painful. But the clue is in the idea of consequence. The whole series of poems is almost certainly about the experience of exile. And the exile was a military and political event caused by a stronger and more aggressive power defeating and overwhelming the nation. It's what's happening all around us, even today. 
And the poem is interpreting the horrors and sufferings in terms of consequence. Israel had got involved in the geopolitics of the area, had made alliances, had taken up arms, had become part of the whole system of domination and oppression. And the consequence is they are indeed caught up in it. And this is what happens when you play that game. And what's significant is that it's not just the ones who took the decision. Not just the ones with the power to take part or not, but everybody, the women and the children and the ones without power, in fact, even more, the ones without power who are suffering and paying the cost, bearing the wrath. Actions have consequences. And actions that are not about life and love and the never-ending mercy of God are actions that bring consequences of destruction and suffering and death. Wrath that works its way out and through the most vulnerable and unprotected. The scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. The prophets show, and we can follow up with, Lamentations bears witness to, the prophets show that the connection between the violation of God's call and the consequence is unbreakable and intransigent. That connection is guaranteed by God as creator and cannot be overcome by any amount of shrewd technology. The structure of creation will not yield to big power or big money or big knowledge. And what is called to account are the times when the call of God is ignored and the neighbor demeaned by political arrogance or economic manipulation and religious obtuseness. We're reconnecting as a church with some of the undertakings we made some years ago to take our eco-impact seriously enough to ask questions about climate change and about how we might challenge the way things are going. It was very easy to convince about this. The science seems to me incontrovertible and the change is necessary. But the moment it crystallized for me was when I had, that, that, that I had and that we had to do something about it was when one of our members said, the way we are living means people are drowning. And as the news of the famine in sub-Saharan Africa begins to break, we are seeing again the poorest and the most vulnerable living with the consequences of the actions that we and others have unthinkingly taken. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. A hundred years ago, the Balfour Declaration was made. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in other countries. November 1917. It gave away that land. Actions have consequences. And if you want to hear more about how those consequences are still working out, how people on all sides in that piece of land are still living with the pain and the suffering, come and hear more about it this afternoon. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to the God in heaven, for we have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven the valiant man is not saying that the wrath of God should fall on the people he believes to be wrong because they're different from him. He's not saying that his individual sin leads to his individual punishment. He's recognizing and expressing the conviction that how we live together has consequences beyond each of us as individuals. And that this is the expression of the wrongness of these actions, the not-godness of these actions, and so the shadow, the wrath of God 
And there's a significant move happening here in the shape of the poem. It's a move from victimhood. Why is this happening to me? This is horrific. To responsibility. It's a move from this is happening to me and us and it's awful and where is God and why isn't God doing something to a place which says this is awful and where do we find God and what have we been doing? What have we really been doing that leads to this? And it's a move away from they are doing this or they should be doing this to what are we doing and what could we do? It's very easy to be the victim. It's very easy to know what everybody else should do to make the world better. It's easy to be the ones on the outside of the whole thing, uncomplicit and uninvolved and pronounced on what should change. But he doesn't let us do that. The forgiveness, which is not letting off, it's not patting on the head and saying it's okay, let's not think about it anymore, but forgiveness, restoration, renewal, the revival that comes from God's mercy comes with repentance. Repentance is a word, again, that we can use all too easily. When I was little and fell out with my sister, which was an all too frequent event, my parents would demand an end to it all, which involved us saying sorry to each other, which usually came out as sorry. But we would say it, and it would blow over until the next time. The repentance that Scripture speaks of, that's described at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, and in so many other places, is that Greek word metanoia. It's not saying, so. well, it's not only saying sorry, It refers, as you know, to turning around. Our word conversion might be closer, except that's developed too many religious overtones. Suggests a response, emotional, intellectual. Many of you will know I'm a big fan of the Anabaptists. Many of you don't, so bear with me for a moment. But the Anabaptists were a movement in the 16th century Reformation. And they developed a theology that wasn't in line with the mainstream movements around Calvin and Luther. But one of their central convictions was that intellectual assent to the doctrines of the church was not sufficient. They were distressed when they saw the new forms of faith being developed and claimed, but people's lives remaining the same. To be fair, Luther and Calvin were distressed as well. But the Anabaptists were distressed enough to move out of those churches and to try to find other ways of living out the faith. And one of the leaders, when asked why he'd abandoned those who would teach him true faith, summed it up this way. To know Christ is to follow him. We cannot know Jesus unless we are living the way he called us to live and showed us how to live. And that's repentance and conversion. That's metanoia. That's turning around and doing it differently. And that involves recognizing what has been wrong in the way we've been doing it. It's not a one-off. It's not a get-over-and-done-with comment, but a continual path of moving from our own way and from the way the structures around us tell us life should be towards the way of Jesus. And it costs. It costs us in the choices we make and in our understanding of ourselves. For it means we know we are not perfect. We have not got it right. We have to be different. And so we hear the valiant man again, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. He is voicing as an individual and as a representative figure of the community the desire and the intention to turn around, to commit truly and utterly, not just as a theory, but as a costly and real change to living as God called the nation. Repentance of this sort is not easy. 
It's not trivial and it's not comfortable. It involves the recognition that we are wrong, that we've made wrong choices and decisions, and that those choices and decisions have had consequences that are painful for ourselves and for others. How have we got here, Don asked last week? And here's one of the answers. We have made wrong choices and bad decisions. Decisions based on self-interest, on willful blindness and laziness. And we've done it as individuals, and we've done it as communities, and we've done it as a congregation, and we've done it as families, and we've done it as a society. And there is a consequence, and it is painful, and people suffer. And God will not intervene us to save us from ourselves while we choose to live like that. Because God made us to be people and not robots. The valiant man will weep, not because he will persuade God, therefore, to forgive, but because now he sees what God has been seeing, the failure and the brokenness and the sin that has led to the destruction. Not because God willed it, but because it is the inevitable consequence of the way the world has made. And he will weep until God sees as a practice that now puts him on the side of God as recognizing the call to life that God has made and that he and the community have ignored. And he weeps his and their and our failure to do it. And he weeps not so much for the sins as for that which has been lost as a result. For it is only when that is lost, what has happened is truly understood and so mourned that the change, the turning around, that is repentance becomes possible. We said in our reflection on chapter 1 that pain needs to be heard, that listening to distress and suffering may sometimes be the best care we can offer. And here's the other side of it. Expressing loss and distress, the recognition of what we have lost or broken is one part of the repentance that leads to change and renewal. And when was the last time that you and that I and that we allowed the grief of the ways we have harmed one another and other people and our world to move us to tears. So here is the astringent flavor of the words of comfort. The love of God is unceasing. The mercies of God are constantly renewed, but that is not easy comfort or some kind of laissez-faire approach. This is the context in which we can find the courage and the, and the possibility to recognize our sin and our failure and mourn it and turn around and repent and seek a new way. It's not accidental that change or renewal or revival or what we long for, sometimes at least, is always associated with repentance. When we are wondering if God is there, when we are reflecting on our relationship with God and, and recognizing that it can be very tenuous and our prayer can be very feeble or even non-existent and our sense of God's presence more often described as a sense of God's absence, it's easy to go to a gentle, vague, non-contentful faith in something ill-defined and undefinable. And it's true that God is beyond our words. But such a faith, or rather such a God, is not tough enough in the face of the grief and the despair of the world. And so we can re retreat to the insulated safety of not engaging. But if we dare engage, if we dare face the darkness and the uncertainty and the sense of loss and the reality of lament, it's not that everything will be all right, but it is that we can live in the reality we are called to and face the God who cannot be controlled 
but who invites us to dare to believe that the love that is God's nature is steadfast, even when our experience is of loss. If we'd read on in Mark's Gospel, we would have heard that Jesus' first words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has, has come near. Repent, turn round, believe the good news. But it comes at a cost. That call to baptism at the beginning of that Gospel is not unimportant and it's not easy. There is good news, but we cannot, we dare not take easy comfort in it because it is the good news of the kingdom of God and that will change us. Thank God. Oh God, it is all too easy for us to look around and see the consequences of bad choices. And yet we know very few set out to make bad choices. And choices that lead to violence and destruction, to fear and to hatred, to loss and to grief, so often come from the desperate attempt to do the right thing. And yet we have become a world where violence dominates where famine tears through nations, where fear and exclusion seem to make up our public speech. And so we pray for your mercy. We confess our own complicity. But we know that this is more than just us. And so we pray for your mercy, not just for us, but for our world. We pray for those who are hungry. We pray for those who are afraid. We pray for those who have left their homes and made journeys that we cannot begin to imagine. We pray for those who have been brutalized and trafficked and sold. We pray for your mercy. We pray for those whose decisions have exacerbated the famine. For those who have chosen ways of violence and fear and cannot see another possibility. For those who know they are right and have the right to kill anyone who is wrong. For those who are so insecure in their own power that they will shut out anyone who threatens them. They will bully and dominate. Lord, we pray for your mercy. We thank you for those who have grasped the vision of your mercy and renewal and work for change. 
for those who even now are trying to feed the hungry and trying to find the resources to make that possible. But those who are trying to bring folks together to create peace, to develop projects that will introduce individuals to individuals so that fear is lowered. For those seeking to develop safe passageways for refugees, that they may travel protected. For those who are working to end trafficking and to rescue those who have been abused. We thank you that there are always some who see hope and possibility and who in anger will work for change in your anger, in righteous anger, will resist evil. And we ask you to raise up more and to raise up us to be part of that change. And we pray for your mercy to open our eyes Open the eyes of those who could change things. To open hearts and imaginations and wills. That your steadfast love can be acted out and on to change things and make the world a better place. And our God, we pray, move us. Give us the courage to repent and turn round. Open our eyes. Help us to see. And when we see, help us to act. so that we will no longer find ourselves standing opposed to you. That we will see with your eyes and mourn with your grief and act with your love for the coming of your kingdom in us, through us, and around us. In Jesus' name, amen.